In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turned the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves, and surely that's got to be so much more inspiring. Hey guys, uh, Blaine here with the Ensigns Podcast. Sam is not here because I am not turning his mic on, though I'm looking in his eyes right now. So what happened is we recorded a follow-up podcast with Mark Evans. Hang on one second. And... You know, you know, jump in now? Yeah. Uh, you're here? I'm here. I'm here. I'm talking. All right. And the audio was problematic. Yeah, they're very pregnant pause there. Um, the truth is, is Mark just wouldn't look at the microphones. Like we've set up to try to capture it and he didn't realize, um, he didn't realize they were there. So he kind of leaned away from it. Um, so if you can get past the fact that he sounds like he's very far away or we're Skyping him in again. The audio is a little bit off, um, but it was still a really good conversation and there's lots of great stuff in it. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy hearing from our friend Mark again. Basically, we just tried to get him on a roll on any topic relating to the creative life and then hear what it's like from an insider who's continuing to dedicate his life to mastering a craft. Check it out. So what stories are speaking to you right now? What film or anything you, have you seen recently? Manchester by the Sea. I've just watched it twice. Um, I haven't seen it. And then we made a short film. We were um, nominated for a BAFTA. So I was, I was in the room when Casey Affleck won the BAFTA and he's obviously gone on to win the, the Oscar. And at the time I saw him win, I hadn't seen the film. And I was like, so now having seen it, man. What in it was speaking to you? I think it's the power of a ghost in your past. Almost the, the worst, I don't want to, if you have not seen the film, I don't want to give it too much away, but mm-hmm. the worst possible wound in a man's past and him having to face that and carry on living with this ghost in his past is just beautifully made, incredibly well written, phenomenally acted. Um, mm. I watched it on the plane and straight away, I didn't do this, stopped it, went to play it again. Straight away, I thought, I've got to see this again. It just, and that's on a little screen on a plane, you know, and it was really a phenomenal piece of film. Man, that sounds good. You, you sold me. When I saw that he, you know, I was pulling uh, for fences. Um, I'm not seeing that yet. And, you know, just because I love that playwright. But, and then, you know, and then I thought Denzel was a shoe-in. Yeah, yeah. And then when, when uh, he didn't win the Oscar, I was like, what? Um, so I've kind of like been holding back from that film, but I think I'll check it out. Yeah, I need to watch that. But definitely Manchester by the Sea. I think... Um... I'm working on a screenplay at the moment and it, it really rocked me because it made me realize how if you're going to write a, a wound in someone's backstory, you have to, that, that's going to set the bar. It felt to me like the old, um, it's the Robert Redford movie, Ordinary People. Have you seen that? No. Like 1978, 79, like the Oscar winning film. I think it was like something like that. And just really slow paced about these huge father and son wounds and like huge themes, you know? Incredible. But yeah, I loved it. I loved that film. Sounds so good. Yeah. I find myself now watching a film and switching it off like 10 minutes in, thinking two hours of my life is worth more than this. I just can't bear it. So I've become more and more fussy, I think. Yeah. I wonder if you have this experience too, but as someone, you know, Sam and I both write and as people who 
want to create long-term, I think that my tolerance for things that really feel like something's missing, like they're a little bit soulless, especially now with a kid and like um, time becoming such a valuable commodity. Do like the same thing of, you know, five minutes of a movie and like, nope, not going to do it. Okay, uh, confession though. For me, films and movies are some, some way that I check out. So like... I can I can watch the world's worst crappy. It doesn't matter. I may not be paying attention, but it's my it's definitely one of my medications on a long day. And I know that Susie would be, like totally agree with that. Yeah, like, you've yeah. watched some of the world's worst movies. Yeah. How have you seen those? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like I, other things like social media at the moment doesn't have that pull on me. Mm. You know, I'll just I, that's not where I'll spend my time. Yeah, but what I'm looking for. Truthfully, like at the end of the day, after you know going for a bike ride or working hard, um, there are times when I wish I had what you guys just said. Mm. I wish I was more likely to be like, you know, this doesn't have meaning. I'm going to turn it off. But yeah. if I'm honest, it's more like, it actually doesn't matter to me right now. I just kind of need something to kind of make everything else just quiet for a minute. Yeah. And I wish it was more romantic than C-quality films. Yeah. But sometimes it is. In your defense, though, you also do really like C-quality films. And you were recently asked to put together an annotated list of the best movies. Yeah, wait, they were good movies. This wasn't like a, these weren't C movies. Some of them you may not like, but that doesn't make them C. See, that's the difference is you actually like classic and oddly done things. And so Blade Runner was your number one. Mm. Oh man, you have so many people on my side right now. Everyone loves Blade Runner. You know what, guys? You've been enchanted. You just like it because your dad thought it was cool. It's so good, man. It's really good. Mark, it's been a few weeks since we've talked. What are you coming off of? What have your last few weeks been like? I feel like I've been on a merry-go-round. Just coming out here away from business, trying to come off email and come off the phone and just text and just just you know come away from home and kids. And um, I really have been on a spinning wheel, really, really fast-paced. I'm trying to uh, build a new website. We are looking at uh, putting together a beautiful coffee table book, like a kind of an object, really, something that's, you know, might sit on the tables of kings and princes, something really, really beautiful. So to pull that off is really difficult because the, the levels of quality are so high. Um, I mean, kind of digging back into sort of nearly two decades of my backstory for photos and archival images, and that's really... Um, that's not easy, you know, digging, yes. digging into that. Um, so all that, all that um, in the midst of the context of just um, just trying to grow the business and grow my team and uh, have a great team, really beautiful people, incredibly talented people. Um, but I realise I'm no manager. I'm not a manager. So yeah, I've kind of got all these different plates spinning, trying to figure out how to, I guess, be present in it all and it not just be this crazy gerbil wheel, which is yes. kind of what it does feel. Does the coffee table book feel like trying to either do yourself justice or somehow cherry pick like some of the best? I would imagine like, what does that feel like that particular project? I've put it off for about two years because I've been so afraid of it. Every time I tried to do it, it just felt too overwhelming. Well, because looking through your Instagram and things like that, I would have met personally, if I was doing it for you, I feel like I'd have no problem filling multiple coffee books with beautiful pieces. So I'm, I'm intrigued by what's like. Yeah, it's, it's what, really funny because, um, so for two years, I put it off and I 
was being asked, please, you know, produce this book. And I just tried to, and I couldn't. And then I employed uh, this incredible girl back in London and she worked for Tate Gallery and Saatchi and some of these big brand agencies. Um, she's a really, really smart girl. And she was able to look at the chaos. So I look at the images funny. So when I look at an image of a piece, I don't see the piece. I see the memory of how I felt during the time of doing that piece. So often I can go, no, no, don't include that because of maybe odd reasons where somebody unconnected needed to come in and say, no, that's a great image. You need to include that. Just forget what you feel about it. It needs to be seen. So having her kind of teasing out like a crazy tangled ball of wool, like almost like a big bag of cooked spaghetti and she was able to just pull it out from my strand and lay it neatly out and create some spine of a story. So uh, I couldn't do it alone. It's truly, it was just overwhelming. But I'm curious, have you been surprised at all at the story that's emerged in playing out these pieces or in looking back at decades of work? Has there been anything that has surprised you that you've stumbled on that kind of struck you as being out of place or unexpected? I think it's been other people's responses. Just hearing Jane, my wife, speak about her favorite piece and why. Um, that's really struck me, hearing her talk. Well, what is it? Um, so it's the, um, some years back, I was asked by a charity called APJ, which is Artists for Peace and Justice. Uh, it's Paul Haggis's charity. So Haggis is a great story. He, after the earthquake in Haiti, he flew out, having a friend who lived there, he flew out to Haiti and saw the devastation and saw just, you know, kids living in squalor and just, you know, raw sewage in the streets and just children whose parents have been crushed in the building. He said, we, I have to do something about this. And, you know, real kind of uh, fresh off the back of his uh, sort of Oscar time of, of winning Oscar for Crash. He flew back into Hollywood and he called his wife, his then wife, and said, look, we just need to do something. Let's just do a barbecue, invite all of our friends. And we need to raise some money because this, what's happening kind of just off the coast of the States is not right. So they did a barbecue and invited the who's who of Hollywood and they raised, I think, like four and a half million dollars in one barbecue. And he thought, we can make a difference here. And then um, I raised the money and he flew out to meet a priest who works out there, a guy called Father Rick Frechette. Uh, and he works in Port-au-Prince and just on right in the slums of Haiti. And Haggis is walking along the beach um, with Father Rick. And, you know, the father says, you know, what are you thinking? Tell me what's, what's going on. And, and Paul Haggis is kind of like, I'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but I've kind of got this idea that I really would love to build an art school here. Thinking he's embarrassed that, you know, this seems so superfluous. And the priest stops him and says, that's exactly what the kids need. Because he said the UN and everyone's sending rice and aid. He said, what the kids need is hope. They need something when life has been rebuilt. They need something to, a purpose, something to believe in. So Haggis formed his charity, Artists for Peace and Justice, and they built this school in Haiti. It's phenomenal. So that's kind of the backstory. And then in 2010-11, uh, uh, I was asked, would I create a piece of art to auction for these kids? I thought, well, how am I going to do a piece that says something, you know? And so I kind of wrestled with it for a long time. And they said, look, we're going to auction it at the Cannes Film Festival in 2011. And uh, the pressure was really mounting. I kind of wanted to pull something out that was, had a meaning, not just to sell. And I, I it was struggling with it, real struggle. And then I was sat one day in my studio. I had this bull shark jaw. Did, I, did you show you anything? It might have been hanging on the wall. Yeah. The jaw of this bull shark. And obviously, I could play with knives all day and I cut my fingers many, many times over the years. I took this shark jaw off the wall and felt these teeth just lacerate into my flesh. 
I love really studying these teeth and, and how they're all incredibly um, beyond razor sharp. And as I was playing, I turned it upside down and this bull shark jaw became this perfect heart in my hands. And that was it. That was kind of my you know, lightning moment. And I realized that what uh, Haggis is doing, in every industry where people kind of climb to the top, it's sort of like the great whites that, you know, become the top of the food chain, whether it's in law or Hollywood. And the people who fight the hardest and have the sharpest teeth seem to get to the top, the most aggressive. And yet here was Haggis getting these A-list Hollywood people and taking them out and flying them out to the slums of Haiti. And they were teaching kids in the school and, you know, Penelope Cruz and Ben Stiller and all these people. I thought, this guy's a hero. And he's sort of turning the system on its head. And it became this inverted, so the shark jaw, when it's turned upside down, becomes this perfect heart with teeth. And so uh, that was the piece I did. And that was Jane's favorite ever piece. Come I didn't on. know that. I knew on. that. So um, the book brought that out of me, you know? Love that. That makes me think um, something I was thinking of looking at, you know, some of your work. Um, and on the one hand, you are creating the craft element is un- unbelievable that these, if you want them to be these photoreal uh, leather etchings that just look like like a stunning black and white image. But also, I know that the process by which you choose those images is like um, kind of where a lot of your integrity as an artist comes through and what you pick to do. Uh, love to hear, would you just talk a little bit about like, so that time it was stumbling on the heart and the shark jaw. Yeah. When you're looking... Um, and deciding, you know, like what you're going to craft. How do you usually find that? Are there typical things that you go to uh, to like stir up uh, creativity? Or are there, you know, rituals that you do when you're looking for something that actually is really going to resonate as being true to you? It's really hard to put words to it. I think it's a lot of, I, I, for me, it's a, it's a real, it's a feeling. It's a kind of deep in my solar plexus deep in my gut feeling and I could be sort of uh, metaphorically kind of playing my finger in the sand and just meddling with things and suddenly I just get struck with this <gasps> and it's this rush of there the energy's there it's hard to explain so once I when I have kind of been struck with an idea for example I, I I'm moving from the currency and still life work really I spent many years trying to execute craft at the most photo real and that was my Two, three years, that was my, I felt like it was my purpose. How technically good can I get? And then when I felt like I kind of mastered that on, you know, for example, the American dollar banknote, it's so intricate when you get into the kind of the beautiful details and the graphics. When I felt I mastered that, then it became about energy. I, I was bored with just these still uh, pieces and I wanted to see motion. So then I thought I wanted something very powerful and, and it became about this lion charging in the sand. And then from that point on, it's all about then trying to find the shot that hasn't been captured before, or putting yourself in a little bit of harm's way. So with the polo uh, ponies, we kind of kind of dug ourselves into the field and let the horses charge over us and ride over us, which was crazy. So we started with the, uh, the ball, the polo ball, uh, maybe three, four feet away from us in our camera lanes. And then the horses have to ride with the riders and then the mallet connects to the ball. And I realized real quick, if they connect with that thing properly, we're going to not only maybe lose our hassle bar, but we're going to lose our teeth. We're done. Oh, yeah. So this is kind of, but, but there's that energy where you're on, right on the edge of you're going to capture the shot that hasn't been done before. And I think with the lion and the tigers, and the, uh, sort of putting myself into a place where it feels scary, but it feels there's something at risk, and it's letting that energy charge you. Um, and when you've got, you might have seven, eight hundred images of the lion or 
pain or whatever. Then it's about trying to, I just spoke about my busyness and the kind of the circus wheel. It's about trying to slow down and know I've got two days and I'm just going to drink lots of coffee and I'm just going to sit here quietly and just go image after image really slowly and let, let them speak. Yes. So I don't know how I, it's all about feeling. You just, yeah, conversation has power and, it, and you can feel it, you know? Just a technical follow-up question. How do you choose the photographers that you're going to work with? And how do you identify someone who is going to at least catch your vision for that kind of energy? And I know you take a lot of your own images, yeah, actually, I, too. I, I, so. I do shoot some of my own. I think, though, um, I'm definitely not a classic photographer. I, you know, I know the inside and out of the camera and know it back to front. I know the image I'm after. I know the feeling I want, and, and then I've kind of, it's probably more like a film process where you, you, I become the director, and then you have your choreographer and your lighting people and your technicians. So I just try and surround myself with really, really skilled people. But ultimately, it's about people who um, I think it's about ego, not not letting egos in the room. I mean, we all kind of have one, but it's it's trying to find people that aren't willing to sabotage the idea because their ego says I'm here and I'm paid to do this and it's going to be my way. So it's all about finding that flow of people, people who you click with, really. Yes, and people who are willing, you know, to be in a room and you're blowing up a bunch of toxic materials. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely that kind of boyhood sort of childlike uh, joy. There's got to be a joy element. Yeah, I think I, I like working with photographers who aren't kind of watching their clock on the hourly rate and it's, you know, you can roll through the wee hours of the morning and they're still, um, they don't want to leave, you know, because it's just, it's just it might be the next shot. You know, it's just about that joy of it, really. Killer. We've had the joy of working with some passionate filmmakers and, and, and cameramen and like just there's something in me when you start saying you know those wee hours of the morning for me it's like yeah the guys that we've had on our crews have helped projects because there's leaving the ego to the side and they're also bringing their passion to the table yeah, like they yeah. just they want to create something beautiful absolutely and it's like there's a lot of jockeying especially among guys our age to be like the one like the alpha the one calling the yeah, shot yeah yeah those people that can kind of put that aside for a weekend or, you know, a week long shoot or whatever it is can really take it to the next level because they get excited and they're like this river and this steam, somebody go fly fish. And we're like, we didn't see it. You saw it. Like, and then you get to partner with people. And then we've had a lot of joy in getting to do that. And like just the passion kind of of feedback off each other and build. Just reminds me of one of my favorite stories with working with a cameraman who, even though, he's only going to be in a name in the credits, is actually kind of putting the entirety of his gifting on the line for the project. And it was, we were shooting in the desert in Utah and he stayed up all night this one night to watch the, the way the moon was going to cross the sky so that he knew the next night, the hour to come get us so that we could do this like walking in front of the moon shot. And you know, it's 2.30 in the morning and we're like, he's like knocking on our tent like, all right guys, like we need to go now, 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 now. Like, oh, and that wasn't anywhere on his shot list. There yeah. was no like, hey, we want a moonshot, make it happen. That was just him going, we're in this beautiful space. What can we do? What can I bring to the table? And I loved that posture. It's like kind of berserk as we call them. People that just, you know, they'll jump without a parachute. Let's just do it, you know? Yeah. I love this, guys. A story of a piece that I'm pleased about, because one of my favorite pieces, in part because I actually got to see it in person, is the soldiers one. Uh, the toy soldiers doing Ujima with the angel of death barely visible in the background. Where did that image come from? So my cousin and my uncle are Royal Marines. So I had a kind of a boyhood growing up with, almost growing up in the shadow of my cousin who was this Royal Marine commando. And I think in my heart of hearts, I would have loved to have been a soldier. 
you know, kind of had that crazy jump out of a plane without an air, yeah, air parachute. Yeah, pretty much, you know, that kind of thing. And I think seeing my my dad's um, delight in my cousin kind of, you know, uh, graduating, as it were, into the Royal Marines was a real kind of big pull for me. But I just knew, you know, I grew up with a long-haired hippie arc and I was kind of a bit of the black sheep and thought, there's that adventure desire for some kind of great battle, but it's just, that wasn't my fight. But I knew I'd had these backstories of war and then obviously then kind of in the 90s with everything, all of the, um, you know, everything's been going on in the Middle East. And then, you know, years later, hearing some of these soldiers, friends of mine, friends, brothers in the uh, SAS and come out and hearing this, the stories about how the disillusionment of war, there's been a lot of that, in, you know, in the, in the movies lately about how um, often war can be sold as this is the fight. And actually there may be actually an ulterior motive. Um, so I think the, that piece was done on the back of the financial crisis. And all the soldiers are obviously, toy soldiers, um, kind of plastic and invaluable. Um, and rather than, than raising the American flag, it's this dollar bill they're raising. It was just kind of me playing with the idea of what is really valuable and what stories are we being sold. And uh, in many ways, it was a piece I kind of did from a bit of a young place in me trying to make sense of it. And in many ways, I actually think I don't feel I had the right to say it. I'm going to be really honest. You know, I've not been in war myself. I've not been out there. I've not gone out and photographed. You know, I've been, not been a war photographer. Um, but it was me maybe trying to exercise some demons and just, yeah. It was an interesting piece, but I, I don't feel like it, it really... I almost hear in that that there's the message that you were wrestling with was maybe not for the particular men and women, but more for the people sending those men and women. That like yeah. it was that ulterior... There is honor. There is valor. Why are you that? Why is that being robbed? Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear, I hear bits and pieces of that. Yeah, in that wrestling. And I think, yeah, the, you know, the obviously I did it in four panels of uh, four leather hides, and as they meet, as they're upholstered and kind of uh, bolted together, they form this crosshair, which almost looks like the crosshair of a sniper rifle. And there's this one soldier who you realize this, the crosshairs are just about to land on this guy and there comes this angel of death kind of coming out of flying down from the sky holding bread and wine and just kind of bringing the communion it's almost like bringing this honor to this little considered this little plastic invaluable being I think really as well I just wanted to work big on that piece you know that was one of the first pieces I uh, put multiple hides together so that was quite, quite a joy just to work on a bigger scale and that's become something you've done a bit more right because I saw one of you in was it the Emirates and this yeah thing that was, was in Kuala Lumpur Malaysia Okay. So yeah, that was a beast. Like, how many feet high was this thing? So it was about five meters by four and a half. Overall, it was about 50 square meters. So on one end of the um, reception desk of the hotel lobby and on the other, this was a diptych, um, but rather than being on the same horizontal plane, they were moved one on one end of the hotel reception, one on the concierge side. So you walk into the hotel and you are in the middle of the diptych. So that was the point of me being down photographing polo from the, the ball's point of view. Yeah, so the writer's coming in on top yeah, of you. Yeah, maybe that's kind of that Welsh rugby thing that I wanted to be in the, in the eye of the storm, in the scrum. Yeah. As you walk in, these horses are charging at you, you know? I'm curious if there's a environment that you kind of wish you could put yourself in the middle of. Because I know we talked about space and stars and we're not going to launch you off on a rocket <laughs> to, go, to go see a supernova. But it, like, if you could, if there was no limit, is there a situation like the, the polo players coming right at you 
is is there a situation where you're like, oh, I would love to photograph and then create this thing get right in the, in the middle of it? Is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, it's really interesting you said that. Last time we spoke only a few weeks ago, I was talking about my ash and uh, magma kind of work. And I'm wrestling between these two poles because the other, why well, I didn't tell you, the other show, and I've been working on this for maybe three or four years, is a series all about boxes. That's um, kind of your, yeah. not yet ready for that, but yes. wanting to. And I've stopped, I think this is kind of a, so your first question was, where am I? What am I coming off of? Since we spoke, I've come off of an epiphany that I don't have to shoehorn everything I do onto leather. That's been a huge thing for me. And I love working with leather. I love working with knives. But there are some pieces I cannot make work in leather. It just won't physically, technically work. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and, I, and I'm kind of wrestling with that. And I don't want to kind of almost like this you know, bulldog. I don't want to let go. I've had some very interesting advice from people at the Royal Academy in London and people with influence have said to me, why are you trying to force this to obey? You can be bigger than one medium. So this is literally maybe 10 days, two weeks ago. So I say all that to say, I'm fascinated with, with boxers. I think it's one of the most pure disciplines. I mean, two men face-to-face in a ring. It harks right back to the two gladiators um, in, in the Greek terminology, it was a, a term called the agon, which is where the gladiators would fight man to man. And that, that ring, that arena in front of the emperor and the crowd would be the agon, which in Greek, ancient Greek means the contest, the struggle against. It's where we get our root word for protagonist, antagonist, against, and obviously our word for agony. And so I've been following some real underground London boxes around and photographing them around the ringside. I mean, these guys are not, you know, it's not Floyd Mayweather. These guys are carpenters and carpet layers and plumbers by day. And it's this underground, clandestine boxing fight. Is the first rule that you can't talk about it? <laughs> pretty much, yeah, pretty much. They do wear gloves. It's not bare knuckle. I mean, I could have gone down the bare knuckle kind of gypsy, but it, yeah, it's not far off that. However, I spent several months around these fights and, I, and it's, so it's in a nightclub and on Friday night, and then around 11 in the morning, whoever goes to a nightclub on 11 in the morning, you know, uh, except for the cleaner, the guys come in and build a boxing ring on the dance floor, move over tables, build a boxing ring. They spend three, four, five hours maybe. So just after lunch, the boxing ring is built. And then the fighters don't arrive until maybe 5 p.m., 6 p.m. for the weigh-in. After they finish work, they come for the weigh-in. So I started realizing there's this pattern, there's this rhythm of timings they finished building the ring by 3 p.m. The fighters don't arrive to 5 p.m. I've got this two-hour window. And so I made my excuse to the nightclub manager that I need to check my lights. And I got scaffolds and ladders and I actually measured the ring out corner to corner, put some masking tape on the floor, climbed up right above the ring, found, dropped the plumb line to find the epicenter of the square ring. And then I hid above the fight with my camera. And I can honestly say, the shots I've captured are the best I've ever captured. Yeah, that sounds killer. It's, and thank God I had a really um, brilliant technical advisor because he helped me set the shutter speed just right. And what we've captured is somewhere between Francis Bacon and Titian because you've got these flesh blurs, these moving, it looks like some Renaissance Rembrandt meets Bacon. It's these beautiful blurs of flesh and, and, and muscle and sinew and or kind of whirring boxing gloves, red gloves that look like flesh and blood 
on this incredible ground of this gray canvas. And the canvas, thank God, it didn't say Bud Light printed on it. It was just plain. It was just all that's on this canvas are millions of rubber sole boot marks that have marked the canvas over years. And they've made these almost like painterly marks. And then, and then there's these dried blood or, you know, kind of coppery, rusty tones of dried blood. And that's the ground. I, I'll show you. I'm going to do a show. Um, the first piece is uh, going to get launched in two weeks at the Dallas Art Fair. And then I'm going to do a full show called Agon in September in London. And this will be my first show. It's not leather. Is it going to be all photography? All photography. Oh, very cool. Okay, because so. I'm dying. When you first told me about these images, I wanted to see these so bad. And you only hinted, kind of teased what you were doing a long time ago long that time. you kind of mentioned boxers, uh, photographs, secret, secret, secret. Yeah, yeah. But man, I can't wait to see those. So the, the ringside stuff I've shot in black and white and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to etch those because it's all about the agony. Actually, what's interesting about the ringside is there's a lot of father and son journeys going on in these photos because a lot of the kids come to watch their dad in the ring. And I've got all these uh, you know, faces, blurred, sort of distorted faces and then the fighters in the ring and often there's the little boy at ringside watching his dad in the ring mm, incredible so I'm going to, I'm going to etch these in leather and then it's the, the, the um, topographical shots from above that are going to be special photos and I love the metaphor that like so often really talented boxing is dance like and here they are in this repurposed nightclub yeah. um, doing this very different very visceral yeah. kind of uh dance with another partner yeah and then there's something in that that when you started talking about agony and protagonist and two men in a ring i kind of forgot that you were talking about boxing there and i almost thought you were talking about was it jacob who wrestled the wrestler yeah and there's almost something of like i want to go is some of your theology in that as well like i i hear your like wrestling with God or, or almost like, like something that's drawing you to that. There's something mythic about that, yeah. for sure. It's funny you, you spoke about, well, Jimmy, the Iwo Jimmy of soldiers. I'll be really honest with you. So maybe four years ago, I had that piece on my wall in my studio and I invited up a critic who judges the Turner Prize, which is arguably the biggest art prize in London. She's um, a professor at the Royal Academy, teaches. And she came up to the studio and... I told her the story, I just told you about my family and the Royal Marines and the, you know, this is my piece on war. And she looked at me and she tore me in the arsehole. She just said, it's not authentically you. It's just, it just feels like you're trying to impose yourself on something that you've never been there. Have you ever been to the Middle East? Have you ever been in war? And she just ripped right into me. And it was these good wounds, you know? And it's brought me right back to, she wasn't impressed by the craft. She just wanted to know, why are you doing this? And then she said to me, she asked me this question. She said, when was the last time you were really inspired? When, were you, when was the last time you were really moved by a piece of art? I had to stop and really think about it. I said, if I'm honest with you, I was on the underground, I was on the London Tube with, with my wife. And, um, and Jane says, I can, I can disappear in a moment. Says, it's like living with the time, being the time traveler's wife with me. Because suddenly I can be there present and suddenly I've seen something and I'm not there anymore, I'm, I'm here. So you know, we're getting off the underground, we're walking on the Tube. And suddenly she's chatting away, and I'm not listening. I've just seen this poster, and it's absolutely thunderstruck me. And it's uh, George Bellows, and his painting, maybe in the 1900s, 1905, 19, 
or six maybe. And it was this piece um, that, that the fight was called Staggered Sharkies. Um, you should Google that image. It, it's a phenomenal painting of two New York boxers. Um, and I saw this and uh, said Royal Academy. And, and I didn't see the name um, of the, I just was struck by the image. And in, in the shot, in the painting that they'd used for the poster, um, one of the fighters has his elbow up, the other one's got his knee up. And I thought, this is a contemporary painter who's actually painting MMA. You know, this is, uh, this is not, this is not Queensby rules. You know, this is brutal. It's kind of blood sport. And I mean, no, this is Bellows. You know, this is from hundred odd years ago. And so um, she asked me, why, why did that, you know, why did that move you? And I said, I think it's because of the hell I've been through for the last five years that I resonate with the fight, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, if you were to speak to Jane, I remember saying to her about seven, eight years ago, I said, I think we should do a book. And she sat me down, she said, we're not ready for a book. We don't have enough of the story yet. And she said, as it came out of her mouth, she wished she could take the words back because she knew that means we're going to have some battles to fight. Keep fighting, yep. So, um, yeah, I think it's definitely, it's true. The, the boxer for me feels, well, maybe it's a series of self-portraits. I don't know. Yeah, there's something very personal about the way that you talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting doing this show that's not on leather. You know, I'm, I'm scared about that, I think, a little bit. It's cool too that because I know you have a background is in painting and being accomplished with brushes and it's such a fascinating it feels like step forward. Is there a reason that when you were thinking about working in other mediums you did you didn't go back in the direction of paints and canvas? I think I've always been this. Um, I've you know, spoken a lot to Morgan about this there's that perfectionist striver in me that has to be the best at whatever I do. Otherwise, why? And I love painting, but I just knew if I can't paint as good as Jenny Savile or Lucian Freud, don't paint. If I can't, if I, if I can't beat Caravaggio, you know, it's interesting, I say beat, you know? If I can't keep up with Caravaggio, why bother? And so I kind of had this love of paint and the kind of the, the flesh marks, and the, you know, um, especially with the palette knives. I just didn't feel I was ever really good at it. I don't know by what, I, you know, I was judging the standard of what was good or whatever, but uh, I think when I discovered carving into flesh, into skin, it felt so visceral, I could make it my own. I could just, yeah, I could maybe carve my own path. What's really interesting though, I would love to be able to paint. I mean, um, I don't know if you know Jenny Savile's work, some of her, work, her paintings are just, um, you know, I'm baking, I mean, incredible, um, one of my favourite ever painters. These boxing photographs, they look so painterly because the ground is the canvas. You're shooting down on a canvas and the swirls of flesh looks and feels as if, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like baking meets tissue and I capture it with my camera. Since the inimitable Morgan Snyder has entered the conversation, I'd love to hear this is kind of like a, like a different, a whole different direction, but, you know, so much of what Morgan emphasizes and, and even emphasizes to us and we like know he's right, but it still ticks us off. It's like, um, it, like it's about who you become and it's the resistance of becoming, it's the resistance of achieving praise and greatness without having done like the legwork of the development of your soul. As someone whose art is like really well-received how do you live out that tension? How do you resist 
getting dragged into kind of like the, hey, be the next great artist, be the guy. Um, I've come out here to Colorado with that one question. I was asked to bring a question. And my question is, how do I, I live right in the heart of Babylon. How do you live in a system and not become part of that system? And in, you know, you just said, how do you not get dragged? It feels sometimes you get dragged away with the tide. And no matter how good a swimmer you are, you can't, you're being sucked in that way. I think Morgan has asked me some really hard questions over the years. Um, I've wrote, written down, I've, I was reading one on the plane. His words to me were, he said, the false self, the center of gravity of the false self is itself. And it has to keep spinning to keep itself upright. It's more, busyness, more, more. It's never enough. How can you come to a place of rest where you are solid? I think my, um, well, maybe analogy that I've used, I'm not sure if it'll, if it'll resonate with the American ones. I don't know what kind of fairy tales and nursery rhymes you guys listen to. But for the, for the Brits, one that we were kind of brought up on, the Grand Old Duke of York. You guys know that? Yes, he had okay, 10,000 men. Yeah, exactly. Cool, yeah. So the Grand Old Duke of York, he had 10,000 men. He marched them up to the top of the hill and he marched them down again. When they were up, they were up. When they were down, they were down. And when they were neither halfway up, they were neither up nor down. Now, I feel as though I can be up or down or halfway up, depending on how, where my bank account is at any one point. You know, how have I, have I sold a piece? Have I sold a few pieces? Of, you know, and it's that kind of dra everything dragging you up or down or halfway up. And I think my battle is, can I unplug myself from everything? Morgan asked me, he said, what would happen if you lost your hand in an accident and you couldn't pick up a knife? Who would you be? I was like, man, that is a hard question. So where do you find your validation? Where do you find your sense of self? Where do you find, can you become uh, secure in being a son and not having any of this going on? So yeah, I think um, that, that's a big question. I, I can't say I have a trite answer. It's a wrestling match for me. Yes. I don't, um, I don't want to be, I would love to be solid. I'd love to be immovable, steadfast, you know, no matter what my, where my banks are. No matter, if, you know, you go through phases, you go through periods, you know, you might be in Picasso's blue period and all you want to do is blue stuff. And, you know, and then you go through your rose period and all you want to do is rose work. And then there's these moments where I feel as though, you know, to use Picasso, then he obviously kind of moved from blue to rose. Then suddenly he came out with this cubist. And I imagine what his dealers and people around him thought at the time. Just, just do me another blue one. <laughs> just, what are you doing? But in him, he had to somehow find he was going to be unplugged from opinion and what you thought of my blue stuff or my rose stuff. This is me now. And that, that's, that's a real challenge, not to keep doing work because it gets your praise or it might sell. It's just, but I keep monitoring that all the time. Morgan loves that quote and I can drop in who says it later but it's that the kingdom of God is always frontier and that's something that I, whether or not you have that as a bearing on your compass I do see that in, in terms of what people do with success in certain things like there's two poles right there's the one of I found it I'm pitching my tent here I'm going to live here mm -hmm. this is where I found accolades this is where I found some measure of success and I'm going to do this forever mm -hmm. until I can't anymore and then I'll just become nothing mm. or like with great directors and great artists and great writers and, and great businessmen like there's kind of take me out of my of that zone let's do something different there's like 
give me the camera and put me above the ring. That there's something of that needs to be frontier that I think is is terrifying because for most of the guys I know, I would kill to feel comfortable anywhere, right? So as soon as you get anything that feels like success, it's, man, I felt that on our film trip personally. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the content. It wasn't necessarily um, being on motorcycles. It wasn't necessarily making that film. It was actually, I was kind of the center of the hub for that project. I knew where we were going. I knew what needed to happen. I knew I could fix a bike. I knew I could talk with our camera guys. And I felt like I was doing that well, and I found those words coming of like, this is where I'm going to do this now. This is where I need to be. I need to be like, this is, I will pitch my tent and live here because I finally found something. And I obviously can't keep generating those sorts of things unless I were to become some sort of project manager, which doesn't sound romantic at all. So for guys that are searching for that success, that almost feels like the end goal. And then speaking from a place of experiencing some of it, you're like that's hard because you can't. If you stay there, you're halfway up the hill. You're neither up nor down. And that's, that feels like a, a mature lesson to learn. It's huge. And it's, you know, I have 10 staff back at the studio, you know, so I've got their salaries and wages to pay. And there's that pull to just keep doing what works. And there's, you know, it's a very real pull. And yet there is that place that, like you say, just wants to be friends here. And go where you, you know, go off piece and go, you're off your own map. I feel so alive just looking at this boxing image I'll show you guys. I mean, it's without doubt the, the most exciting work I think I've ever done. That's so good. I think, not to quote Morgan Snyder at excess, but I do like him. He and I were smoking right over there, about five feet from where we're smoking right now. And just asking him categories and things. And he put that one out of like, hey, the most important question of your life is who are you apart from your gifting? And there's a deep resistance in me to actually having like uh, the identity of being a son of the father be not only stabilizing, but energizing and directing and confident where it's like, I don't need anything else. I don't need job title, writer, husband, dad, like all those things where I'm learning to apply skill can be put to the side and I can be the worst person in the room at what's happening and still have this thing. But I do, I see it in certain men and it get glimpses of it in certain scenarios where, and it feels like where it's the most clear is where something is going on that they are really bad at and they're just fine. There is like a wellness that they're displaying, like being the worst basketball player, like shooting hoops outside that you just, wow, you are actually, you are more of a mature man than the guy who's dominating right now because he's in the middle, he's in his wheelhouse and this is an area where the fact that he shines is bringing him life and like you suck at this and yet you're so good. Like everyone would rather be you than good guy. And I think that it's just appealing enough to keep me going like, man, I like the areas because I like my areas of gifting and, and skill simply because I even I know how to progress there and I know what it looks like to work and to produce real things. And that is so uh, stabilizing to have that as like a compass point and yet to leave that and be like, yeah, just go to a place where like your rootedness, your life as a son, like the solidity of your heart, all those things are stabilizing enough that you'll still be. How often do you see that in conversations with guys? Let's take it to the lowest bar and it's just a conversation and how uncomfortable people can feel if they're if they're talking about things that they're not comfortable with. Obviously those two words, that's sort of like a very circular definition. But I think of just experiences where 
people will kind of navigate conversation more into their world and, and what they know how to talk about so they, so they don't look like an idiot or they feel like they have something to offer to, even if it's just, hey, how's your day going? Like pretty quickly away from areas that feel dangerous and into areas of like, oh, you know, I'm really pumped because my college basketball team is doing really well. Like they take it in this direction of like, that that's where you feel strong, even in this really slow stakes area. But to see someone who can do it well and just engage in someone else's life or just to, to go in areas that are uncomfortable. I see, I feel like I see that all the time that we're, we're prone to try and bring things into our strength because we're terrified of where we're not. Yeah. Being exposed. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally exposing. I'd love to ask a question on there. Of, it, it can be an art, can be in another area, but what is, what is your best story of failing where it didn't come together and yet you think of, Actually, that's a really good story. I'm trying to think. Now, you asked the best one. I've got so many failures. failures <laughs> I'm trying to find the kind of quintessential one. I think, actually, my problem is I overdo it, if I'm going to be really honest. I over, I'm sat here with you now with a torn cruciate ligament in my left knee. It's, I could kind of walk around without anyone really knowing I'm limping, but really it's torn. I need a surgery on it. It's bad. I, I snapped it. And uh, my football stud stuck in the ground. The year my daughter was first daughter was born, so it was 2004. So I've lived for 13 years without facing it, you know, and getting it sorted. But the problem is, is that I'll charge into things kind of gung-ho without warming up and damage something. Something will get snapped. And then I'll just kind of carry on gritting it through. And that's not, not just about my knee. I do that all the time. I suppose I... I it's not, what did Jesus say? It is finished. It is done. He didn't say it's overdone. That for me, it's always about, it. no, it has to be more. It has to hurt more. It has to be more than that. And I'm not quite sure what that's about. So often I'll get myself in situations where I'll completely bite off more than I can chew, carry more than I can handle. And I think for me, it's just this life of, I look back at the last couple of decades of, of being crushed by things. I carry this and carry this and carry this and I end up just, you know, like Atlas trying to carry the globe. Um, I'm trying to think of specific stories. They'll come to me. Did, I, did we speak about the jaws last time, about the scars? Did we speak about that on the podcast? Uh-uh. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah, so I, I love that scene. Same with that ACDC track. I constantly play it. There's that one scene I keep going back to. It's when you've got the, in the original, the first Jaws movie, you've got your wily old sea dog and then you have the, uh, the scientist and then you've got the sheriff. Obviously the sharks attack and killed. And now they're out on sea, on the sea, just waiting for the thing to turn up. And, you know, days go by and nothing. Just the seas are silent. And so what do they do? You know, they turn to the bottle and they're bored, so they start drinking. And as they're sat there, I don't know if you remember the scene, but they start showing off their scars. So the captain pulls up his child's like, oh, no, no, stingray. And he said, oh, I've got that beat. And he pulls this manta ray. And, and then I think he finally opens his shirt and says, oh, you know, I've got my heart broke. And, and there's something about you said about Jacob wrestling, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. I think maybe it's, I hope it's a good thing. I've started to realize that having these scars is actually a good thing, that you aren't indestructible. Do you know what I mean? That you aren't this kind of superhuman that can go through everything. That now I actually physically walk with this limp. I get sorted that maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's realizing that there are limits. You have your limitations, you know? Because young men want to be indestructible. Yeah. 
you know? We think we are. Yeah. It's better if we don't have a need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes me think of, I wish I could remember the name of the poem or even the actual lines, but it's told from the perspective of God and he's like, and he's got grafting blessings into creation. And then he, uh, he withholds rest as this act of kindness to go like, and if the things that drive this person aren't going to bring them to me, I'm at least going to let exhaustion do it. And therefore like the, you know, the, the gifting, the abilities are all there as ways like to know God, to come into intimacy. And yet there's this core one that is also a great act of kindness, which is like fatigue uh, and exhaustion and those things, which is for most people, the only thing that will actually turn you in a direction of pushing into the father where like all of the things that you actually want are going to come out of. Um, but I just hear that and you describing like uh, the scars, the fallibility as actually things that you can count on um, to promote your union with God in ways that you're gifting, even though it's supposed to, doesn't always do. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, Mark, it'd be easy to just go through the whole afternoon and conversation. Really, really grateful to have you here in person. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to look you in the eye and, and share stories. And um, I know that our listeners loved the last one and will be eager for this. And so just thanks again for, for joining That's us for another one of these. It was a joy. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather, that if something about this podcast struck you, that you might pass this off to somebody that you think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th, if it's before October 10th, you can just wait. And there's always the chance we might be late. Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us, but so little really happens on social media now, that's kind of a moot point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall. See you guys next week.